Hello and welcome to Coffee Meet with Algamy Consulting. And with me, your host, Chris New. Today's podcast is the sixth in our third series of podcasts titled Optimism with Caution. As always, we aim to provide insight from key players of the wealth and asset management industry on what it means to run and operate an investment management business as the industry looks forward to refocusing on a post-COVID world while also adapting to a post-Brexit digital era. Today's topic is fintech, AI, data, security and privacy. What are the recent trends? Who are the players? What are the implications from an organisational point of view? I'm very lucky today to be joined over Zoom uh, by two industry leaders, one global COO and also a serial tech entrepreneur to talk with us on these topics. First of all, I'd like to welcome Megan Burnett, who is Chief Operating Officer of MNG Investments. Good morning, Megan. And, Thanks for um, having me. That's a pleasure. And also by Keith Hale, who's Executive Chairman of Trustkey and the FinTech Entrepreneur. Welcome, Keith. Hi, Chris. Thanks for, uh, thanks for hosting. Before we get into um, the meat of the thing, maybe, Keith, could you um, just give us your sort of elevator pitch on where you come from and what you're passionate about in the, let's call it the FinTech space? Sure. I've been in uh, technology for 30 years this year, my anniversary. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but uh, thank you. So in the last 20 of which has been in, in an entrepreneurial basis, uh, running and building technology companies. So I'm uh, pretty passionate. I really enjoy building technology companies and actually these days helping some other startups to build as well. So I, I've done the startup, I've done the scale up, and now I'm doing another scale up and also advising on a couple of other startups to help them get off the ground. Perfect. You're the right person to have on the podcast. Megan, maybe you give your background and how you got to become a, a CEO of a global asset manager. So I never really set out to be a CEO. I guess that's often the case. But my background is growing up in South Africa and being passionate about investment management, being passionate about the financial services. And what I really enjoy is the opportunity to work with people like Keith, who are disrupted from the outside and work to really change the investment business from the inside and make it more efficient and really try and turn those businesses into something that's fit for the future. Before we talk about fintech, and I, I normally ask a, a fun question, a teaser. So I, on the basis that Megan, you're South African and therefore I'm assuming you love sport. And Keith, I think I got the impression that you were a sports fan too. I'm going to combine that with innovation. We're in a, a middle of the summer of sport. Obviously the Olympics in Tokyo, there's going to have to be some innovation because of no crowds. Athletes are going to have to put on their own medals. So there's a lot of sort of disruption and change there. And we've seen that across sport. What innovation uh, would you like to see in one of your favourite sports? Keith, uh, you mentioned that your technology is now fintech. What is fundamentally different between fintech and the sort of tech services that you've been delivering over the last 30 years? Is it the scope, the pace of change? You know, what, what's the difference, if any? Look, I think, uh, you know, technology has been part of finance and specifically asset and wealth management, you know, forever. Certainly in my lifetime, there's always been technology being deployed. Technology's changed quite significantly over that period, but it's, it's always been around. So you always had, uh, to my mind at least, one of a better ex expression that are providing software to financial services organizations, whether they're banks, whether they're asset managers or, or wealth managers. And the reason for that is you get economies of scale and development. You develop something once for a number of customers. That's why I think yeah, there's, uh, there's vendors and that goes from operating systems through to programming languages, but then through to vertical applications in wealth and asset management, because you build regulatory capabilities, you build 
yeah, efficiency capabilities, you build digitalization capabilities once, and that's why they've been around for a long time. Now, I think what happened is that the industry has now recognized that to be really leading and successful in some of the research we've seen in terms of financial services is the highest performing growth financial services organization are the most digital. So if you're the most digital because you have the best engagement with your end customer through digital and traditional means, that's where it's really changed the game. So now the whole digital engagement with end customers and internally for operational efficiencies is much further up the agenda than it ever has been in the past. Whereas before, frankly, the vendors were lowest form of life and you know, blame the vendor is the easiest get out clause, honestly. So that's really changed. I've gone from the lowest form of life to the top of the tree of how we can help re-engage, regenerate, digitalize as the financial service industry changes. Megan, where do you see the asset management sector compared to the banking sector, not only in terms of this interaction with the end consumer, but also this sort of the operational um, systems and how they've digitalized Thanks. I think without a doubt, the um, asset and wealth management industry is lagging the banking industry in many aspects. It's playing catch up with the banking industry, really from the scale and the efficiency that the banking industry has had, you know, the ability to meet regulation that they've had much more intensity in that space for many years. But really where the um, asset management industry is, is, is having to react now and having to partner with vendors, partner with fintech, as Keith puts it, is because of the pressure on fees. That, for me, is, is the biggest driver, certainly in the active space and the wealth management space. It's all around benefit to customer, value assessment being driven by the regulator, and how you can ensure that you're able to deliver a good outcome to the client at, at a reasonable cost. So that's the, the pressure that is on the, the asset and wealth management business. And as a result, what you're seeing is the need to, to focus on what we're good at. And we are investment managers and wealth managers. We're there to generate wealth for our customers. We're not there to build good IT systems, good technology um, platforms. And as a result, I think you're seeing a lot more partnership in the industry and the need for digitization the need for being able to differentiate yourself in terms of your class customer experience to do that is to be you know far more efficient and the only way to be far more efficient is to have better technology which is taking that sort of concept of as you say your specialization is developing alpha and, and and managing money that's your core business and then if we have technology providers working with you to find those efficiencies if you look at a, a silicon valley model often they will talk about everyone in the organization going digital. Do you think there's a different operating model as the way Megan has described it in, in wealth and asset management industry where you do actually outsource that technology expertise and the, the fintech disruption? I think as a customer in the wealth space, to Megan's point, when I, when I get wealth managers offering services, they're saying, look, we'll give you 5% return on an economic cycle. We're going to charge you 20% of that pie that they're going to potentially get us as an end investor i just think where all those fees going so i think that's driving the sort of things that megan's talking about in terms of fees and price you know you want value for money in the low returns kind of world of you know, low interest rates people want to see good returns mm. if you don't have high automation in that 
realm, then that's where all the cost comes from. It cost comes from people manually reconciling stuff, not having processes, not having ice between systems, or not having a, a system that's uh, complete to, to fulfill a function. And that's difficult to do. And as I say, back to my economies of scale thing, if you build that once as an asset manager or as a wealth manager or as a bank, that's a lot of work to do, a lot of effort, a lot of time building that technology. So you really do need automation to drive those fees that Megan was referring to. But you also need good engagement with the customer, particularly in the wealth space. I want to see what I see with my retail banks, which is uh, interacting with them uh, digitally through apps and through websites. I don't want to go to paper-based and having to sign things on uh, manually and what you. I want to do that like I do when I sign up for Revolut and I have a digital ID check. We talked about... Uh, the customer experience. What underlies that is, is normally the data that we, we, as an industry, has on customers. How do you handle customer data? As a consulting, our experiences is often very fragmented within organisations, especially if you have legacy systems. They don't necessarily talk to each other, or if they do, it's very much tied together through bolt-on systems. How is your current set of data, and how are you trying to change that? Yeah, I was about to respond to Keith there. I think. So the two key drivers we're seeing, the one is pressure on fees, which absolutely requires technology and, and automation. And the other one is a change in consumer needs. And, and when we talk about consumerism, m and is both retail, investment management and, and savings provider, but we're also a wholesale investment and an institutional investment provider. So customers and consumers are absolutely core to everything we do. But if we look at that automation journey and the ability to both keep the customer happy and really focus on the customer journey and also reduce costs. For me, the, the real accelerator in transformation in a business is around data. So technology for me is a base. It provides the, the capability to automate, to make you more efficient. But ultimately, I think the differentiator for certainly for us as an active manager trying to manage our client experience, it's all about the data. For us, our innovation is largely focused around both our ability to source alternative sources of data, um, unstructured data, our ability to source, store, and in interrogate that data for us is our differentiator. Ultimately, in a world where technology is speeding up, it can deal with more and more data, the ability for us to differentiate ourselves on alpha is going to be on our ability to deal with our data better than the guy up the road. So data and our ability to build out our data platform to normalize that data, to inculcate ESG data, which is more and more fundamental to the value proposition we are offering to all sorts of clients, is yeah. absolutely the base of our business strategy and a base of our transformation. I'd agree with you that customer data and investment data is a challenge for the industry as a whole. And certainly one of the themes we've seen coming out and where some of the digital disruption is bound to play a big part is around sort of the AML, KYC, the onboarding of your clients we're all dealing with the same people. The same people have the same credentials, the same data. And I think as an industry, it's certainly an area where we could do better. We, we could make that whole customer onboarding journey far better. And the catalyst there is around data and consistency of what you know, various industry players are asking people for, how we store that and then how we use that as an industry. So I think without a doubt, um, data is going to play the differentiating role in our ability to digitize and our ability to improve their client experience. If we, if we talk about data, we then talk about data handling, which you said, again, was a differentiator. 
so, so again, assuming that would that particular data is something that you would you want to analyze in-house and have that expertise. How do you deal with that? That's often leads to a conversation about AI, which um, I, I don't know whether you have any views on AI, whether that's going to be in the near future or if this has still got some other hurdles to come over before that's relevant to your business model. In the Alan Turing definition of AI, where you can't tell the difference between whether it's a computer or a human responding to you, if that's the ultimate goal, we're, we're a long way from that today. But taking it back to base level, I think AI actually starts with the data. So if you think people that have been successful with algorithms and machine learning and deep machine learning and, and AI, it's the Googles, it's the Facebooks of the world, because they almost have all the data associated with your searching, with your persona. In the investment and wealth and asset management space, the data is so fragmented, not just within companies, but across the industry. You will have a custodian bank talking to your asset manager, talking to your fund supermarket, talking to your wealth manager, talking to your IFA, talking to your local retail bank that's the uh, front end. And bits of data will be fragmented across that whole value chain of investment. So to get that total picture is actually virtually impossible if, as the industries defined today. If Facebook or Google or Amazon was setting up an investment product or a long-term savings type product, they would not do it like this. This is They would start with a, a D2C type model like Megan was talking about, where you would actually have a direct-to-consumer type process and it'd be very efficient with great customer experience and what have you. And that's why AI is starting to be applied in things like RPA, robotics, in other words, around improving those, those kind of things. But it starts with the data, but then it's applying it in a more sophisticated way to help with you know, automation. It can maybe be applied to some of the kind of stuff that Megan was referring to, getting data from unstructured sources to make better investment decisions in, in, in the portfolio management type process uh, and the portfolio stock picking and all that kind of things. If... The Turing test is a 10 out of 10. I think we're a one or a two at this point in life. We're really at the very beginning of that, particularly in terms of uh, finance and asset management and wealth management specifically. I'd agree with Keith in terms of where we are on that journey. I think the magic with AI, let's RPA we used, we deployed. I think most of our competitors would say they've got RPA in, in different forms. That for me, step one, it's the basics of efficiency. Megan, when you say you've employed robotics or sort of process automation, where have you employed that? What sort of processes? Are... We've deployed that in processes that are are, are repetitive, right? So yeah. you know, it, it would boggle the mind as in the financial services or how much it is you know, humans going and fetching data from one system, as Keith mentioned, fragmented through the asset liability register of, of an investment manager, because you've got both sides, you've got the, the liability register of your client and the asset register of the instrument. There's so many points of fragmentation, and it's those points of fragmentation where you've got humans sitting in the middle, literally moving data from one system to the other, comparing them, matching them, doing reconciliations. And while the listed industry is very automated and we've managed to get to very high levels of straight-through processing without RPA, using the industry standards, the private asset side is is absolutely nowhere close in that. For me, the next step is, is deep learning. And the benefit of, call it AI or computer machine learning, which I think is really the, the next step rather than AI, because AI, the way I've interpreted AI, AI is really where the computer starts to think for itself and do things for itself. But let's go to machine learning, which is where a computer is trying to learn patterns, which it can do faster, better, and more accurately than a human can do. That part, I think that journey has started. Quantitative type fund management, 
where the machine is analyzing investment patterns, analyzing stock return patterns, and can do you know, that analysis 10 times faster than an analyst. Just the pace with which machine learning can analyze that is far outstrips humans. Call it efficiency for RPA and super efficiency for machine learning. True AI, I think, is a way off. There are pockets where it's worked, in very specific pockets, but I think it's a while before AI starts to inculcate into the, the true kind of end-to-end of the investment management process. Just give you a practical example. The company I uh, run today, Trustkey, we actually service the corporate services trust and alternative fund industry. And so it's like high net worth individuals who have trust structures or corporates that have domiciliation in various places or, or alternative fund structures and the delivery of those guys to their end customers which corporates wealth high net worth individuals through to to funds how they interact and how they can get automatic responses to questions about my returns and my holdings and my entities etc so we've in our innovation lab which we have within our business we've started to create some kind of interesting ai type functions or machine learning type functions like a wealth chatbot ask questions and automatically responds so what, how many entities tell me my entities or send me this report chat it in and it actually just, uh, produces that stuff now we've only done it in the lab type uh, so far but even for those kind of industries just to have a website or an app is like unique but to then go to the next level and have automated responses to requests on demand through chatbots that's where the industry is going to go and i think that's really interesting applications of machine learning it's algorithmic but that's where i think the industry needs to adopt more of that type of technology and I guess it's, again, now we talk about customer experience. You have to be very careful that customer experience is a positive one with a machine learning slash, you know, on the path to AI until you have singularity. Is anything else suboptimal? So I guess there's a huge element there for humans to manage the customer experience. I think the, the beauty of the machine learning there needs to come through to understand what experience the customer wants. And you can learn that through the patterns and understanding the patterns of queries coming through from your client. Mm-hmm. The, the, the beauty of AI would be that it then says, okay, generally speaking, if the person asks for this, the next thing they're going to ask for is that, let me give it to them proactively. I think we're a way off from that. I guess this leads us to our sort of final pillar in the topic, which is around security and privacy. So we're talking about lots of data. We're talking about interacting with customers as well as within COVID, we've had to learn to remotely work. And the general consensus seems to be around the industry about a a hybrid model for for going back to normality. I guess around that, what are your sort of thoughts about the the sort of uh, things that need to happen? Megan, maybe as the person on the hook for this, what do you see the developments in security and privacy from your, your end? So um, you know, from our side, the security and privacy of data, we absolutely recognise it's, it's our responsibility. It's, some, you know, it's probably the most highly regulated aspects of our industry. So I guess two parts to your question. The one is, you know, what do we see in terms of return to work and, and how those models will work? The reality is we've been almost 18 months into this journey of people working from home and they're working from all sorts of various jurisdictions. And therefore, the amount of data security that we've put in today needs to be as good as it will need to be tomorrow when we start going back into the office and living more of a hybrid model. But from a, a ability to you know, source and store data, really it's around our data warehousing, making sure that we've got the right levels of security, obviously of any 
you know, externally facing networks that we've got top level data security in place around those servers. The difference um, with people working from various jurisdictions is obviously around your network. Ultimately, with data security, there's a level of human trust that has to be put in place Hmm. because ultimately your employees are the ones who have access to that data. Now, you can put in security to prevent bulk download of data and you can put huge amount of security policies in place. But ultimately, there's a huge cultural aspect to this as well, which is a big focus for us as an organization in terms of making sure that each and every employee understands their role in that data security journey. Ultimately, data and keeping your customers' data and privacy safe needs to be something that's deeply embedded within the culture of your employees. And as you're working more and more remotely, the reminders, the the online training, the confidentiality policies that people are, are, are signing and the supervision from management is absolutely critical. Keith, from your perspective, helping Megan fulfill that from a technology but also from a culture perspective, because that has to filter through to you as a service provider. Are you culturally aligned with the people that you're delivering that service to? I was, I was actually pleasantly surprised, not with what happened because of COVID with the deaths and everything, but pleasantly surprised of how we dealt with it. We did a practice day on the 15th of March and then told everybody not to come back into the office the next day. The practice day turned out to be the day that we we, we went and it worked remarkably well. Now we're a tech company, so you'd expect us to be able to work in a tech environment, remote developers and all that kind of stuff. But the bit that I thought wouldn't work would be, number one is engagement when we're selling our software to people, but also how we're engaging with implementation of our software and all that kind of the customer service aspects of our business but both of which were challenging but we managed through them and we've done remarkably well and actually it's been a springboard for digitalization in many ways people have realized that they actually do need to work digitally and working from home but fundamentally if you go back to the actual question around security i just think it's absolutely you know paramount and critical it has to be secure uh, from the ground up any technology you use so it's just it's just like more than the hygiene, it's that's an essential, critical thing. We get our uh, a third-party security expert to audit our software to ensure it's absolutely secure because we got 460 customers in the corporate services and trust world. These are high net worth individuals that our customers are managing with you know, entities and structures all around the world. It absolutely has to be 100% secure. And when we launched our digital engagement platform, our portal capabilities for our customers, that absolutely had to be squeaky clean, no exceptions. The technology has to be built from the ground up in a technically secure way, particularly as you web enable stuff, web enable the digital engagement with your customers. And I would say that the advice I would give to you know, people running asset management firms and, and banks is now that fintech or technology is so far up the agenda that needs representation at the executive level of those asset management and technology companies. There needs to be that level of you know, responsibility at the board, but with somebody who's a chief security officer, chief data officer, those kind of people need to be representing. I think that's beginning to happen, but I don't think it's ubiquitous across the industry. That comes to a sort of organisational change, given the these changing technologies and, and the sort of skill set, managing multiple relationships, collaborations, and developing technology at a pace. What are the type of people you're going to employ? What do you imagine your employees to look like in three or five years' time, Megan? I think it's an evolution in terms of the type of people, I don't think it's you go to sleep one day with a team of operational administrative type people and wake up the next day with a team of data analysts. 
I think it's an evolution and a balance. And I think you'll need both types, but the, the balance will change in terms of the proportion of people that you have on the more technology-enabled, data-enabled, analytically-enabled. Certainly in our business, what I, what we're working towards is to move more from doers. So when I say doers, they're the people that are finding the data, pushing the paper, creating the data, running the operation, much more to people that are analyzing that and interpreting it. We see a lot of the jobs, I'd say, moving up the scale in terms of the thinking side of the role the connectivity and understanding the data side of the role and the servicing type of the role. Ultimately, while you may be a technologist um, supporting a client service journey because you've gone into a much more digital enabled journey, you can't just be a technologist that knows how to code. You need to understand what the clients want and what is the outcome they're trying to achieve. So I think we're going to find you know, much more blended type um, roles, much more thinking roles, and fewer doing roles. The technology should do the doing and, and the humans should be doing the, the thinking and the client, the top end client um, journey engagement. So there's going to be some fundamental changes across the whole world, all industries of how we work and how we live and what we do. And so to Megan's point, the kind of manual boring type repetitive tasks you don't need to do that you just need to apply technology in a a good way and by the way it's better for people it's better that somebody manually reconciling something that could be either automatically reconciled or just on a blockchain and shared ledger hopefully people can adapt to that and if they can't then maybe they need to do something else i think the real difference is going to be that people need to unlearn and relearn those are going to be the people we need rather than those that can stick to a pattern of what they've done before So just to wrap up on the three takeaways I've taken, and there's been a lot of great points here. We've talked a lot about data, but really that AI is a long way off, but we're making a lot of progress on both automation, RPA, and machine learning. Something that came through strongly, particularly for Megan, is around the culture that you're putting around security and privacy. It's obviously a concern for everyone. Uh, And Keith, particularly mentioning that sort of board representation for us, leadership is something that we always highlight as being fundamental in in delivering change. And then the sort of thinking in terms of automation is then an opportunity for the the, the people that we have in the future. They can focus on clients and they're thinkers, not doers, because I think that makes for a much more appealing industry than maybe traditionally finances. Before I let you go, I had a, a fun question on innovation in sport. Who would like to go first? The thing that does break my heart, though, is whether it's the Olympics or, or indeed the uh, the British, British and Irish Lions uh, playing in South Africa is empty stadiums. I think that's as a sports fan, I, I hate to see that. Is there an innovation where the data can be better dealt with so you can know who's infectious and who's not infectious and get the quarantine levels down and get to a better place where we can manage through COVID, through better like data and COVID passports and these kind of things? And can we use technology better to enable life to get back to normal in sport in other areas? Definitely. Well, they, sport is nothing without the, the crowd. To Absolutely. Absolutely. Megan, uh, innovation, technology and sport that you'd love to see. <laughs> For me, sport is about people. It is about people connecting. And, and so I'd agree that one of the innovations that would be great is either get the people to the stadium or the stadium to the people. So two, two options. One is, I guess, that there's more and more of augmented reality sitting in Silicon Valley. If we can't get the, the people to the stadium, we can get the, the stadium to the people through a whole very different digital experience in terms of that augmented reality the, the glasses you wear 3d at the movies but there could be augmented reality to be in the stadium and 
share the voices back to the, the players that aren't fake voices. I think there'd be something in that. It's way out. But more realistically, a digital passport that shows you safe to enter from an illness perspective. Wonderful. I think two, two great ideas there. We'll see if we can monetize those uh, at a future date. <laughs> Thank you so much for the, uh, your time today and helping us take the pulse of the industry in regards of technology, fintech. I think that's been incredibly insightful. So um, thank you both. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks. Nice to meet you, Megan. And- Thanks, everyone. Bye. To our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Uh, and what I hope you will agree has been uh, incredibly uh, insightful and enlightening on uh, fintech and technology in the WAM industry. We look forward to grabbing another cup of coffee with Algamy Consulting and with you all in the next in our series of podcasts on the theme of optimism with caution in the wealth and asset management industry. If you want to discuss this podcast further with us or would even like to take part in the next in our series of Optimism with Caution, please get in touch with us through inquiries at algamy-consulting.com or via LinkedIn, Algamy Consulting. Thank you and goodbye.